Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we are going to be talking about drafting Lorehold Aggro in Strixhaven. As I've mentioned in the previous episodes, I'm going to be breaking different uh, archetypes within a single color pair into different episodes. So today I'm looking specifically at aggressive builds of Lorehold, which is not to say that that's the only or the correct way to draft Lorehold, just that it is a way to draft Lorehold, and when you find yourself in a spot where that's the strategy that you're aiming for, I'm going to talk about how to maximize that strategy and what cards to look for when that's what you're about. We're still very, very early in Strixhaven's lifespan, and while I've been drafting a lot, this is still somewhat new to me. That means I don't personally have a ton of experience successfully drafting Lorehold aggro. So I wanted to make sure that I was using all the information available to me to come up with my best guess about the methodology that I used to consider the data that is available to me, by which I mean informing my opinions here largely by 17 lands, is to look at opening hand win rates for cards within red-white. So then that gives me a sort of cards based on how successful they have been when drawn in opening hands by drafters collectively thus far. And the reason that I'm looking at opening hands specifically is that I'm trying to maximize for an aggro deck that's trying to play a short game where a lot of the strength of your performance is going to come down to how strong your opening hand is and how well you can curve out and stuff. So by looking at the opening hand weight rate specifically, which is not the stat that I usually focus on, I can get a better approximation of which cards play well, specifically in aggressive decks. But because opening hand win rate doesn't tell the whole story and can bias heavily toward one drops and stuff like that, I also noted and recorded their uh, game drawn win rate to be sure that I wasn't including any cards that were really awful throughout in the course of a long game and that I wasn't missing anything that's really good to draw later because it doesn't fit the opening hand model. So basically I'm just trying to stick with, you know, some realistic approximation of card strength while biasing toward uh, strength and opening hand. So that gave me a few different lists. First, I looked at just what are the actual best cards for this archetype using that analysis. And those are the cards that, you know, you want to take really highly and that are likely to put you into this archetype. But once I had, you know, the list of, okay, these are really strong white and red cards, that list doesn't necessarily tell me which of those cards, when I take them, I now want to draft red-white aggro. Like Swords to Plowshares, for example, the best white or red card that you can have in your opening hand. But... Maybe that doesn't mean that if I first pick a Swords to Plowshares, I should be trying to draft Lorehold Aggro specifically. So then what I did is I compared those stats to the stats for those cards at large in the format. How it, is Swords to Plowshares better specifically in White Red Aggro than it is just in any deck that plays it? And as it happens, Swords to Plowshares actually does perform considerably better 
in Lorehold than it does in the format at large. And that might be partially because people are very likely to splash Swords to Plowshares. So I wouldn't be surprised if Swords to Plowshares also performs really re well in Silverquill decks of all sorts and Lorehold decks of all sorts. So I wouldn't say that Swords to Plowshares is a strong push toward drafting uh, Lorehold aggro, but it is among the cards that I noted as a card that performs better in Lorehold aggro than it does in general. Whereas a card like Sparring Regimen, which is the second highest uh, win rate card in the format in your opening hand in Lorehold aggro, that card doesn't perform exceptionally well in Lorehold. It's actually better, I would guess, in Silver Quill, which makes sense because Sparring Regimen adds counters to creatures. And as I've discussed a lot previously, things that increase the strength of your creatures are a lot more effective when your creatures have keywords. The creatures in Silverquill have a lot more keywords than the creatures in Lorehold. Therefore, Sparring Regimen, the enchantment that when you attack, you can untap one of your creatures and put a counter on it, is going to be a stronger card in Silverquill than it is in Lorehold. So while if you first pick it, you're happy to go into Lorehold, it's not pressure toward drafting Lorehold. It's just pressure toward drafting a white aggressive deck. Whereas, obviously, you know, the white and red cards like Blade Historian and Venerable Warsinger tell you to draft white-red specifically because they are white and red. That was how I looked at, you know, the top, top first pick type cards to look at which ones are important for this archetype for writing context and, how you know, when and how do you get into this archetype. The next thing I looked at was the commons sorted by opening hand win rate again, acknowledging their overall like game and hand win rate to figure out what does the bulk of this deck consist of? A new part of my process that I haven't done in the past is when I was making my skeleton, which is laying out what a hypothetical de uh, deck of this archetype would look like. And let me pause for a second to remind anyone here who is a limited lover, I think is the name of the tier, uh, patron on Drafting Archetypes. The notes for this uh, podcast have been posted, so you can open that and follow along if that's interesting or useful to you. When I was making the skeleton, which is in those notes, I allowed myself to play two copies of any common that is taken above eighth pick on average, according to 17 lands, because those are the cards that I can expect to see multiple copies of in the course of a draft. If, you know, if they're tabling, it would be easy for me to get them. Because I thought that there was a decent chance that this deck would rely on having multiple copies of the same cards. Because part of the strength of this deck is that it's looking for cards that other people don't want. As it happened, that's very much the case. The top two opening hand win rate cards for the archetype are Combat Professor and Pilgrim of Ages of the ages, which are both high picks in general and not cards that you table. Using my methodology, I figured you could only expect to have one of each of them. The next best cards, Lorehold Campus, interestingly, and then also Stonebound Mentor, which is the white-red 1-3-3 that when you exile a card from your graveyard tries one, is actually the third highest performing spell. So right after Combat Professor and Pilgrim of Ages. And that card is taken something like ninth pick on average. Already we're seeing cards that are, you know, actively quite strong in this deck that you can just kind of count on getting if your uh, archetype is open. That actually performs better in your opening hand specifically than heated debates, though I would certainly 
not say that it's better in the deck overall than Heated Debate, as it performs a tiny bit better in your opening hand and considerably worse over the course of a long game. And you certainly shouldn't take it over Heated Debate because you can probably table the Mentor and not table the Heated Debate. The ranking of the next cards that are best in your opening hand, Eager First Year, Guiding Voice, Illustrious Historian, Star Pupil, and Make Your Mark. All of those cards routinely table. They have really good opening hand win rates, most of them have somewhat weaker uh, win rates later in the game, notable exception Guiding Voice, which is just good, about as good at any point. There aren't that many cards that do better than them later in the game, that do worse early, with the, the exceptions are Rise of Extus, Enthusiastic Study, and Study Break. Those cards are worse in your opening hand, but significantly better later on, such that I would want all of those cards in a lower hold aggro deck and included all of them in my skeleton. So my skeleton had multiple copies of all of those high win rate cards that all table. So the skeleton, to go through it quickly, is like two guiding voice, two make your mark, two star pupil, two study break, two year first year, two illustrious historian, two stonebound mentor, and then one blood age general, one Lorehold Pledge Mage, one Heated Debate, one Pilgrim of Ages, one Combat Professor, one Rise of Extus. A note on the Blood Age General Lorehold Pledge Mage split there. Blood Age General is a card that my methodology would let me play two copies of, but I chose to only play one, and I chose to cut the second copy. It's the weakest two for a Lorehold Pledge Mage, despite the fact that Lorehold, Lorehold Pledge Mage has worse stats. The Lorehold Pledge Mage is the white-red-white-red hybrid one 2-2 first strike with Magecraft, get plus one, plus zero until end of turn. Another sort that I looked at is how many copies of these cards have been played by decks on 17 lands in total. Lorehold Pledge Mage is one of the most played cards in white-red, despite the fact that it has pretty bad stats. Its stats are bad enough that it looks like it doesn't belong in this deck because I can, I have more than enough cards that I shouldn't ever have to play it. I am skeptical that it's actually that bad because it's fairly obvious to me that the more tr combat tricks you have, the better Lorehold Pledge Mage is. And I suspect that Lorehold Pledge Mage's win rate in aggressive decks is being driven down by the fact that people are putting it in their Lorehold control decks where they don't have as many combat tricks and it's not as strong. And so even though it doesn't have a great opening hand win rate and it doesn't have a great game and hand win rate, I don't have the ability personally right now to look at its win rate as a function of the number of combat tricks in your deck. And I suspect with a higher number of combat tricks, it performs better. And I, my guess is that it probably moves up enough that you likely do want to play it in this deck. Twin Scroll Shaman is extremely similar to Lorehold Pledge Mage, generally like has really, really close stats, wants basically the same things. I think Twin Scroll Shaman is basically a very slightly worse Lorehold Pledge Mage. You can use Twin Scroll Shaman if you don't have Pledge Mage, but they're both kind of like borderline anyway, so I would be kind of looking to play Pledge Mage and taking Twin Scroll Shaman as like a backup card if I end up short rather than really looking to play it. The next list that I looked at was Uncommons. For the most part, this is just, okay, well, here are the cards that would be nice to have. But I also, again, noted the Uncommons that perform particularly well relative to when they're taken, and looked specifically at the Uncommons that routinely are taken after 8th pick as, okay, well, no one wants these things, 
So even though they're uncommons, I should probably expect to see them and I can plan to have them as like part of what I expect this deck to look like. So uncommons that played particularly well in this archetype, obviously, you know, Professor of Symbology and Igneous Inspiration are great in this archetype, but the ones that perform well in this archetype, despite the fact that they go late and you can expect to table them, are Access Tunnel, Hall Monitor, Academic Dispute, and Infuriate. Note on Academic Dispute, in the aggregate data, it's taken like ninth pick on average. I think that's nonsense. The card's great, and I don't think that it will continue to go anywhere near that late for very long. That's my kind of like methodology for how I analyzed which cards uh, statistically make the most sense in this kind of archetype. There's more to this analysis than just that, but that was my kind of like overview. Let's see what this looks like. You know, first take situation. Looking at this skeleton and pairing it with like looking at the good uncommons and rares and trying to figure out like, okay, what does this deck do? Why is it strong? How do I maximize that strength? Led to a few key points. So the key points that I want to cover. Where Silver Quill Aggro leans really heavily on keywords like lifelink and flying in particular. Um, it has a lot of access to lifelink and flying. Laurel doesn't. Laurel's creatures, like the creatures that I listed that are in this deck, don't have keywords except Laurel Pledge Mage, which was borderline made the cut anyway, and it's, it just has First Strike, and Combat Professor, which is an extremely high pick, and you're unlikely to see a lot of them, and it's not really going to like define your deck. One could argue that that makes the case for uh, the 1-2 Flying Spirit as a way to like give your creatures keywords because they have numbers and not keywords. That might be true, but I would caution that that card has very low win rates in this archetype, and I think that you you just want to accept that your deck isn't about keywords. So what do I mean by your deck isn't about keywords? Keywords, as I've discussed, are kind of a multiplier on the quality of power. If you have a bunch of power, why would you not want keywords to go with those power, with that power? Incidentally, Zephyr Boots, the equipment that gives flying that is not a very good card, does actually have a pretty high win rate in Lorehold. It is a good way to give keywords to the numbers that you have. What I mean about just accept that your creatures don't have keywords is instead uh, lean on tricks and removal. Accept that when you attack with your creature, your opponent is going to be able to block it and they're going to be able to like have a normal combat with it. And that's fine. That means that because your creatures are cheap and aggressive, you're pressuring your opponent and getting them to the spot where they're forced or encouraged to block which validates your combat tricks. So I think like one of the really big thing that's, things that's going on here is you're playing weak two drops like your first year in Illustrious Historian and attacking. And then when your opponent blocks, you play Make Your Mark and then you ensure that your creature is going to trade with theirs and it'll be replaced with a 3-2. Presumably this is going to be a tempo, you know, mana positive exchange for you and you'll get to make another play also. You're basically just trying to flood the board with high power and get damage in and end the game and basically like finish your opponent off with cards like Enthusiastic Study and Study Break. Enthusiastic Study giving trample, Study Break tapping two blockers to let your creatures, you know, finish your opponent off. So the theory on a big picture level about how your deck lines up against other decks, ideally, removal is bad against you because your creatures suck. None of them are worth killing. Removal is going to trade down 
on mana against you. Like if people have heated debates, your creatures mostly cost one to maybe, you know, they kill a stonebound mentor and trade evenly on mana. And sometimes they're actually trading down on like value. Like you're, they're killing a star pupil and you move a counter somewhere. They're killing an illustrious historian. And now you have this resource in the graveyard that you can exile to make another creature. They're killing a pilgrim of the ages that already got you a planes and now you can bring it back. So removal is bad just because you're not presenting anything worth killing. But these garbage creatures are pressuring your opponent's life total, so they have to eventually just like use their removal spell. But because they're so bad, your opponent might just like take extra damage before they, you know, finally bite the bullet and spend a removal spell on it. And then creatures are bad against you because you have tricks and removal and like study breaks to stop those creatures from blocking. Your opponent has to try to use their creatures defensively, but you're good at punishing the use of creatures defensively. So your deck is theoretically, uh, from a certain perspective, good both against removal and creatures. From an optimistic point of view, you beat everything. <laughs> Obviously, in practice, it's not exactly the case that, oh, if you just play under underpowered cards, no one can beat you. But th there is something going on here that like strategically gives you ways to make your cards line up. The other major you know, selling point here is that there's so little competition for the cards that you want because what you're doing in the format's relatively unique. Plays cards that don't fit well strategically in other places. So you can afford to be really selective about which cards that are available you want to put in your deck because, you know, like I said, the deck is composed of so many cards that tables, so you can just play lots of copies of the same thing. And then the other point here is this deck is very, very fundamentals of magic, just like I have creatures on a curve with tricks and removal. You're, you're playing corset magic. None of your cards specifically like care about your other cards. There are no real synergies. Your creatures don't even have abilities for the most part. You're not, you're not trying to like do anything fancy. You're not building any engines. You are just building a curve and some interaction. You're making sure that you have like the right number of creatures that you can apply pressure and like that they cost the right amount of mana, get rid of your opponent's blockers. It's it's really, you know, like ABC magic. That's, that's what's going on here. It's just a super straightforward aggro deck where there is like enough power and there are enough tricks and there are removal spells. The deck is supported and strategically it does line up reasonably, especially because so many people are just kind of like messing around. For the most part, when I've lost to Lorehold Aggro decks, it's not like, oh yeah, my opponent did this really powerful thing. It's just like, yeah, they played some garbage that I wasn't ready for and then I was dead. Huh. All right, well, next game. <laughs> um, there are really small synergies, like, you know, putting Guiding Voice on a creature that might use a counter above average. Like maybe you put it on a Star Pupil or maybe you'll put it on a Twin Scroll Shaman. For the most part, you can combine your Guiding Voice pump spell on whatever creature you want, get your, you know, random extra 3-2 threat or something. It's all about the same. So looking at the list of cards that are played frequently in White Red, one other card that's not in my skeleton that's played a lot, uh, not surprisingly, is Tome Shredder. Tome Shredder obviously has a lot of synergies, in white red because it tapped to exile a card in your graveyard which can trigger stuff that cares about exiling cards in your graveyard it is not a good creature i believe for this deck i think that it takes too long to make it bigger two two haste for three is 
fine, but not really what you're looking for. Basically, like despite the fact that it has haste, it generally plays a lot better on defense because then it can, you know, both threaten to block and get bigger in the same turn, whereas like it can't both get bigger and push damage. Tome Shredder, to clarify, is the uh, two and a red, two, two, haste, tap, exile an instant or sorcery card from your graveyard, put a plus one, plus one counter on Tome Shredder. I do think that's a pretty strong card in some versions of Lorehold Control, especially if you have Quintorius type synergies. But for the aggressive deck, I think it's not the three drop for you. And I think that you will generally be able to, I mean, I think that it's worse in an aggressive deck than Stonebound Mentor, Lorehold Pledge Mage, and Twin Scroll Shaman, and Pilgrim of the Ages. And there should be more than enough of those before you even, you know, before you get to thinking about Tome Shredder. That, that's just a card to watch out for that I mentioned, just because it, I know that statistically it is played a lot in white and red. I guess that leaves going over just the list of cards that are putting you into this space. If the deck is full of, you know, relatively unimpressive late pick commons, potentially, well, why, when do you decide to move in on that? Obviously, you should only do it if you're getting good stuff. So the list of cards that are better than Combat Professor. There aren't very many. All of them you would be reasonably happy to take first pick. Combat Professor itself isn't a bad first pick. So that means these are, you know, better first picks than Combat Professor that would either lean you toward this or open you up to this kind of archetype are Swords to Plowshares, Spiring Regimen, which is the three-man enchantment that I talked about that learns, Blade Historian, which is the quad red-white hybrid 2-3 that gives all of your attacking creatures double strike, Professor of Symbology, the uncommon 2-1 enters the battlefield learn, uh, Leonine Light Scribe, the one in a white 2-2 Magecraft, your creatures get plus one plus one until end of turn. Venerable Warsinger, the one red white 3-3, three, three, probably Vigilance and Trample, and when it damages your opponent, you can put a creature in, from your graveyard onto the battlefield if it has converted mana cost equal to or less than the amount of damage this ditched them. Plarg, Dean of Chaos, the 2-2 looter that has other abilities in the backside and stuff. Lightning Bolt, Hoffrey Ghost's Forage, the 4-5 Mythic that makes token copies of your creatures when they die. Retriever Phoenix, the 2-2 Flying Haste Learn Phoenix that for 4 mana that you can return from your graveyard when you learn. Igneous Inspiration, the 3 damaged any target sorcery that learns. Elite Spellbinder, 3-2 that looks at your opponent's hand and can exile a card and then that card costs two more mana to play for the rest of the game thunderous orator the uncommon 2-2 vigilance that picks up abilities from other creatures lorehold command the the <laughs> the command it has a bunch of modes it's an instant for five mana uh conspiracy theorist the 2-2 that when it attacks you can spend a mana to discard a card and draw a card and then if you discard it on land, you can cast that spell for the rest of the turn. And that's it. Those are all the cards that are ahead of Combat Professor on the list. As far as cards that you would likely, you know, take when you see them, you know, first pick, second pick type cards, where if you have those, this would be a good direction to be in. Now, among those, the ones that are not better in this archetype, Sparring Regimen, Professor of Symbology, Leonine Light Scribe, Igneous Inspiration, Elite Spellbinder, Thunderous Orator, Lorehold Command, Shock. You want to play a deck that can cast them, but they're not particularly better in this archetype than they are in any other deck that can cast them. Whereas like Retriever Phoenix, for example, is a red card, but it performs significantly better in 
Lorehold than other red decks, which makes sense to me, especially Lorehold Aggro, because this is, you know, a 2-2 flying haste creature. That's going to be really good when the rest of your deck is just about getting your opponent to a low life total. Retriever Phoenix would be an example of a card that if I first pick it, I'm going to likely lean toward potentially drafting exactly this deck specifically, I think. Prismari in general is not as aggressive as, like, the Prismari aggro deck exists, but I think it's harder to get than the Lorehold aggro deck. And Retriever Phoenix is going to be quite a bit stronger in an aggro deck. Those are the cards that first pick think about this path. A lot of like whether you want to be on this path specifically uh, is going to come down to, okay, well now I'm drafting red and white. Am I seeing more powerful late game cards returned past caller? Uh, the six mana 4-2 that brings something back from your graveyard to your hand. And am I seeing Quintorius or whatever other draws there are to playing a longer game? Or am I seeing more of just like Guiding Voice, Study Break, Lorehold Pledge Mage, Enthusiastic Study, Stonebound Mentor, Eager First Year type aggro cards. For the most part, if you take a, like you start with a card that puts you in Lorehold, you're going to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to take the best white and red card I see for a while. You'll figure out maybe into like pack two, pack three, okay, do I want this deck to lean aggressive or do I want this deck to lean controlling? In all likelihood, if you're supposed to be in Lorehold, you'll end up with a lot of the tools to shift your deck to build one way or the other. And it's just a, a matter of, okay, which of these cards am I going to leave in the sideboard that I took in pack one when I still didn't know exactly where I was going to be? Once you're into pack three, it's going to be a lot of, okay, I've decided to be aggressive. These are the tools that I have. What am I missing in terms of like building the correct curve? Are there tricks that I need? You know, do I have like a study break or some other way to like, you know, finish my opponent? So the actual process of drafting like Lorehold Aggro as compared to drafting Lorehold in general is going to look similar for presumably at least roughly the first half of the draft. And then a lot of the decisions about like, how do I properly build this as an aggro deck are going to come into, come into play in the third pack when you're like rounding your deck out and then in deck building. That covers my notes here. And that's my big picture synopsis of what's happening with Lorehold Aggro. I'm going to open it up to uh, questions from chat. I do want to, as always, take a moment to thank my new patrons over at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. So thank you to uh, Bruno, Jerry, Christoph, and Florian. For anyone else who's interested in supporting the podcast, click on the patreon.com slash drafting archetype, or type it into your web bar or whatever, and uh, look over the benefits that are offered and see if it appeals to you. If you've been listening to this for a while and you feel like it's helped your limited game, you know, it would be great to give back to myself and my editor and encourage us to keep this going and everything. That's my little pitch there. So now let's move on to these questions. First question, is Mana Tithe good in this archetype? I would have to imagine so. I think that its stats the last time I checked were positive, not amazing, but Mana Tithe is, you know, better the shorter the game you're playing. It was very good against me the one time that it was cast against me out of a deck like this. I, I suspect that it's quite good in this archetype. Next question is a good question about the number of lands in this archetype. Is it uh, usually trending towards 17 still? Given the curve that I'm looking at in the, like, skeleton, I think for the most part you can pretty safely cut a land. Obviously, lesson and learning in general 
makes you want to increase your land count because they're all deceptively expensive because they give you stuff to spend your mana on. But it's still the case that this is a deck full of two and three drops and your guiding voices are usually going to be finding a three mana lesson here. One important note is I do think that like, even though this is a two color deck, I think you, the lower hold campus is a real priority. Like it shows up very high on the like opening hand win rate stats. And I think that that isn't a fluke because you're so good at spending your mana, you do empty your hand and the ability to scry is really powerful in terms of uh, making sure that you can grind your opponent out or find a way to finish the game or something. So this is a deck that really wants to find and play Lorehold Campus. But despite that, I think it will often want to be, my guess is only cutting one land, going to 16 lands because of campuses and learning and stuff. But I do think that you want to go a little bit lower than 17. The next question is, Pledge Mage is good or bad? The stats are bad, but they're highly played. My guess is that if you have a sufficient number of tricks and learn cards, like the numbers that you want on those, then they are good. One card that's really going to pull that direction is Academic Dispute. Academic Dispute plays really well with uh, Lorehold Pledge Mage. So if it continues to be the case that you can get those late and you end up with, you know, one or more Academic Disputes, that would be a pretty strong draw to me to put Lorehold Pledge Mage in my deck. Yeah, the next question is what cards are considered a trap to add to your Lorehold Aggro deck? For example, the five mana 2-2 uh, flyer that returns a three or less mana value creature from your graveyard to your hand. I think that's a great example of a card that to me reads re reasonably strong, but doesn't have particularly good stats in this archetype. I think Tome Shredder is another that I discussed. I think the 1-2 flyer that can exile a card in your graveyard to give something flying is another. You want to be careful about red and white do have a number of grindy cards. And when your plan is, I'm going to play bad creatures and attack you and like get your life total down and then finish you off with, you know, study break or something. You need to be careful to make sure that your cards are all about that. You know, like you don't want to have like one fours in your deck or something. The five mana value flyer is a good example, um, along with the other ones that I mentioned. Next question. If you were to splash with lower hold, I, I, I mean, in general, I'm not looking to splash in aggressive decks. The more controlling I am, the more open to splashing I am. I would say that this is just not a deck where I'm looking to splash at all. Next question is, does the combat heavy deck get better or worse in best of three on average? I can't really speak to that. I assume in general that I'm talking about best of one. Yeah, I'm really not sure about whether it's significantly different to best of three. The next question is about Clever Lumimancer and whether it's too risky. Clever Lumimancer has bad but not horrible stats but like significantly bad like it's worse in your opening hand than lorehold pledge mage and then much worse later in the game i think you need to be kind of like unrealistically guiding voice and study break and enthusiastic study flooded to use clever lumomancer well i don't think that it's impossible to have so many of those that it's worth it, but I think for the most part, it's not what you're looking for. I think like it, it has considerably worse stats than Star Pupil. Next question, is this an archetype that can perform well with commons and uncommons, or does it need rares? Every deck in this format is gonna do way better if it draws a really good rare. Like there are rares that have just much higher win percentages than uh, the commons. That said, 
like I said, this deck is playing really fundamental magic. The fundamentals are capable of winning games. Um, like I said, I, I've definitely lost to people who essentially beat me without playing any good cards because I was just not set up for like the level of aggression that this deck is capable of. Next question, Team Pennant has horrible stats. Do I think it's reasonable to get enough tokens to make it shine? I think that it is. I personally don't feel like I've had bad experiences with it. And I do think that this is a deck where it should play relatively well. I think that if you have a good amount of learning, especially if you have multiple spirit summonings, it makes sense to me to play Team Pennant in this deck. It's possible that I'm just wrong about that, but I, I would be open to putting Team Pennant in a deck in this archetype. Next question is about Twin Scroll Shaman, basically saying that Twin Scroll Shaman with Pump Spells is strong, which I agree with. I still think that I prefer uh, Lorehold Pledge Mage to Twin Scroll Shaman, especially if you're looking to play multiple copies, because if you have like multiple Lorehold Pledge Mages, then a trick that you use anywhere pumps all of them, whereas that's you know not the case with Twin Scroll Shamans. I, I mentioned that despite these cards having relatively bad stats overall, like I think that they are much better as a function of how many tricks you have. I just think that even when you're doing that, Twin Scroll Shaman probably moves up a little bit faster than Lorehold Pledge Mage, but not much. And I think Lorehold Pledge Mage stays better than Twin Scroll Shaman for quite a while. But I do think that, you know, as you have more spells and as you, you know, build your deck toward them, I think that, you know, they can pass Stonebound Mentor, despite the fact that, you know, Stonebound Mentor has like a 3% higher opening hand win rate than they do in like white red decks at large. But I do think that like, I, I do believe in their potential when combined with tricks. Next question. Are there any circumstances where you wind up splashing cards? Again, in aggressive decks, I really don't want to splash cards. Next question. Assuming you don't have Light Scribe or Lumomancer, what would an ideal ratio of uh, creatures tricks removal be? So this is a little bit tricky because whether Study Break and Guiding Voice count partially as tricks kind of comes down to how many of them you're playing and how many spirit and inkling and elemental summonings you have. If I have a lot of spirit summonings, especially if I also have elemental summonings, which would make Guiding Voice better in the late game, then I'm willing to play significantly fewer creatures Though I do need to have enough creatures that like I'm going to have a target for my guiding voice. But if I have like a lot of guiding voices and a good number of summonings, I might be comfortable playing something like 10 to 12 creatures, erring toward just having like a lot of two mana creatures and planning to go like turn two two mana creature, turn three two mana creature guiding voice, turn four like summoning and maybe another guiding voice or something. The summoning uh, lessons in general make counting creatures in this format very strange proposition. So like if we count all of the cards that learn as potential threats, I would say you probably want to have, you know, 16 or so threats and then a few removal spells. I, I don't know. I don't really think much about like exact totals about these things for the most part. And more to the point, I don't really have enough experience to say anything confidently there. Next question is, how many star pupils would I play in this archetype? I'm more willing to play it the more guiding voices and expanded anatomies I have, but I would start to get worried about having too many low-impact cards around the third or fourth, but 
I wouldn't be surprised if there's like a world where you can just lean in on tons of them and cutting lands and playing more of the pump spell stuff, specifically the put counters on things stuff. Next question is about Lorehold Excavation in Lorehold Aggro. And I'm really tempted to be like, yeah, I would play a Lorehold Excavation in Lorehold Aggro so that like if the game goes long, I can play it and finish my opponent off. But I'm pretty sure that that's not the right way to finish your opponent off. The decks that are trying to do late game stuff can do powerful things that are going to like take the game away from you before you can finish them off by spending five mana to make three twos for a while. And uh, you're looking for your like stuff that finishes the game to like kill your opponent rather than like trying to grind additional value in the late game. Next question is defend the campus good. Defend the campus did not show up among cards that had desirable stats for this archetype. And I think that I would rather try to use more flexible removal and um, pump spells to like get through large blockers. This next question is about if I were to play best of three, whether there are situational cards that I would want to have access to out of the board. And I mean, the answer is like, yes, I would want everything out of the board, but more to the point, I would really like if I were playing best of three to have the ability to pivot between more aggressive and more controlling builds if the archetype is properly open. Next question, Lorehold Apprentice, does it suck? Yes. Next question, would you play Dramatic Finale in this archetype? No, I would not expect to be able to cast that spell. I would expect to have too many mountains in my deck. Next question, given the overall weakness of Lorehold creatures, how much does getting enough of the quality cards, Thunderous Order, Professor of Symbology, etc., matter to having a viable aggro deck? So Thunderous Order specifically is actually pretty unimpressive in Lorehold. Like I said, in Silver Quill, you have a lot more keywords, and in Lorehold, you just don't really, such that, like, Thunderous Order, I don't know how often it's going to be better than Eager First Year um, in Lorehold. Basically, I think Eager First Year and Illustrious Historian are both actually just pretty good for what this deck is trying to do. That means that, like, the deck isn't actually, like, leaning on uncommons and rares that much the common creatures that you're that are kind of the backbone of your deck like stonebound mentor eager first year illustrious historian star pupil all go super late yes professor of symbology much better than all of those professor of symbology is also like roughly the winningest uncommon in the set in general and so you know obviously your deck's going to be better the more of those you have because the creatures function pretty well for what the deck's trying to do it's i don't think it's essential to like replace them with the uncommon versions the next question is about Expel, which I think is good in the like grindy engine Lorehold control deck and very, very bad in Lorehold aggro, like worse than it is in Silver Quill aggro. Because like in Silver Quill aggro, you have evasive creatures and you can end up in a spot where you're attacking your opponent with evasive creatures and they're attacking you with ground creatures. In Lorehold aggro, your creatures are ground creatures and you're not going to end up in a spot where Expel is doing what you're looking to do unless you like are totally getting crushed. So you'd much rather have a combat trick there. And the next question is about study break to set up expel, which I think is something reasonable to do if both of those cards are in your deck, but I wouldn't put expel in my aggro deck to do that. All right, so that's going to conclude uh, this week's podcast. Thank you everyone uh, for tuning in, checking this out on whatever platform you happen to be listening to this on right now i do record this at the same time almost every week come back next week on youtube or whatever podcast app you're into um and 
Of course, for anyone listening to this not live, you can keep doing what you're doing if that works out well for you. But if you do ever have an opportunity to tune in live, I'd you know, be happy to field your questions. And again, you can always do that uh, Wednesday at 8 p.m. Central on twitch.tv slash Samuel H. Black. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye.